So I don't know if you uh, are aware of this, but my Mississippi State Bulldogs won a national championship this week. I've never said that sentence before. Nobody has. Uh, now, I wanna, I'll say this. We're equal opportunity here. We're the church. If Ole Miss wins one, if Southern Miss wins one, we'll celebrate that also. Just not as much. But, uh, yeah, it feels good this week. I had, Jennifer had to talk me into wearing red and blue for the fourth. I really wanted maroon today. But I've got, you know, I've got the rest of the year to wear maroon every day from now on out. Um, I, the, here's the reason I mention it. Not to boast, but there was, a, there was a point. If you followed along this past week, it was actually eight days ago now. One of, the, one of the highlight moments was really unexpected. It came in the elimination game Mississippi State played against Texas. Game was tied 3-3 three to three in the bottom of the ninth inning. High drama. Man on second base. And the guy that comes up to the plate is named Tanner Leggett. He's from Raymond, by the way, not that far from here. But Tanner Leggett was only in the game as a defensive substitution. He did not have very many hits throughout the year. He was a a guy who typically sat on the bench and waited for his moment. And so Texas, the opponent, they were probably thinking what most of us were thinking. This guy is not going to have the game-winning hit. Maybe the one who comes up after him, Rowdy Jordan, maybe he'll have the hit, but not Tanner Leggett. Nobody expected that. And so the Texas pitcher challenges him with a good pitch, probably thinking I'm going to strike him out here and move on to the next guy. But then Tanner Leggett very calmly swats that ball over the shortstop's glove into left field and wins the game. An unknown, relatively unknown player on the team is now a hero. He's a legend forever. And part of the reason for that is they underestimated him, just like you probably did too if you were watching from home like I was. They didn't see it coming because they didn't think he would do it. And now he's a hero among state fans forever. We all, as we begin John chapter 7 today... We start to see a trend develop where pretty much everybody is underestimating Jesus. And it's interesting because up to this point, Jesus has done many great things. He's performed miracles. He's had great commendation from John the Baptist. The Lord himself has has sealed Jesus' ministry from on high. It's very clear that no one could do what he does unless God is with him. That's what Nicodemus said back in chapter 3. And yet we're at a point in John 7 where public opinion of Jesus has begun to really teeter. Because at the end of chapter 6, if you were with us last week, we saw this, all the, the massive crowds that were following Jesus, enthralled by his miracles, at the end of the last chapter, they basically desert him. They all turn and walk away. His teaching was too hard to accept. His claims about himself were too lofty. And so the people withdrew from Jesus and they walked with him no longer, John tells us. Well, now in chapter 7, John picks up the story about six months later. A few months have passed since that moment of desertion. And it's very clear, we'll see it today, Jesus is not getting the fanfare that he once was. Some of that by his own doing. But y'all, at this point in the gospel, people have begun to underestimate him, to look down on him, to consider him as less than what he really is, including his own family, we'll see. At every turn today, the people think they've got Jesus figured out and boxed in. And yet we also see this, that Jesus continues to transcend their categories. People underestimate him, and time and time again, he shows himself great. He shows himself divine. 
And today's no exception. And I want to say this to us, for, for us right where we sit, so many years later in a different context, yet it's true for us too. No matter what you think of Jesus, no matter how great you think he is, you're probably underestimating him. At any given moment, even me as I preach about him, I am not really thinking of Jesus as wonderfully, as lofty, as great and powerful and awesome and gracious as he actually is. And my hope today is that as we look into his word, we'll come to a deeper appreciation for all that he is. So here we are in John chapter 7. There are a lot of different things going on here in this scripture. And so we'll just walk through it together and see how it unfolds. Verse 1, after these things, after what happened in John 6, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Uh, Jesus now for several months has been living and ministering in Galilee, John tells us, because the Jewish leaders in Judea and in Jerusalem were seeking to kill him. We saw this first back in chapter 5. After Jesus makes himself equal with God, the people were so distraught and angry over that claim that they sought to put him to death. Well, now the Feast of Booths has come. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the, the biggest, uh, the three biggest Jewish festivals where massive crowds would gather in and around Jerusalem to celebrate. It's a big deal. It's a big opportunity. And so you notice how Jesus' brothers begin to goad him here. You ought to be going up to Judea for the feast. That's where the people are. That's where the crowds are assembled. And if you want to be somebody, if you want to get your popularity back after having lost it, this is how you've got to do it. If the people are there, if you want to be big, if you, want to, you, know, if you are who you say you are, if you really do these things, then you've got to go show yourself to the crowds again. You've got to get your mojo back. Right? Why would you be here and not there? Go show yourself to the world. Right? Now, that sounds like good practical wisdom, doesn't it? Any of us might give the same counsel. But did you catch what John tells us in verse 5? For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary, virgin-born. But Mary and Joseph had other children. And so these are the younger brothers of Jesus. How would you like that, by the way, to grow up as the brother of Jesus? Why can't you be more like your brother, Jesus? These younger brothers of Jesus, they grow up with him. They know him. They know him as well as anybody but they don't believe him. They don't believe in him. They know him as brother, but they don't know him as Savior and Lord. And so the encouragement they're giving him, go up to the feast. That's not coming from a heart of faith in his brothers. That's simply the wisdom of the world. If you're so great, why don't you go and prove it? Why don't you go and show yourself to the crowd? And so what's Jesus' response? Look at verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, 
but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So if Jesus' brothers are thinking of him only as a normal person, it's brother Jesus, not Savior, not Lord, they're underestimating him. They don't really understand or know or believe in who he really is and who he claims to be. And you notice Jesus offers a corrective to them here. My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. Jesus is making a clear distinction between himself and his brothers. I'm not like you. And that's not an arrogant thing to say at all. That's just the truth. Jesus is the divine Son of God. And so the truth for him was always his decisions, his actions were being dictated and governed by a higher authority. It was the Father in heaven who was determining Jesus' time, his coming and going, his steps and his decisions. And so Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast, you do whatever you want. You've got nothing to worry about here. The world cannot hate you because you are of the world. The world loves its own. But my time is not yet here. The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And so the Father's direction has not pushed Jesus out of Galilee and back into Judea, for one, But also, Jesus explains the animosity that awaits him there. Something clearly his brothers don't understand. Why is it that everybody wanted to kill Jesus? Why did they hate him so much? Because he positioned himself, he postured himself as judge over the earth. That's something only God can do. And Jesus said it to the crowds in Jerusalem back in chapter 5. He said, the Father has entrusted all judgment to me. And therefore, judgment is in my hands. Now, that's something that that the crowds would have hated Jesus for, because not only do people not like being judged, but how dare this man claim that kind of authority? The world hates me because I testify the truth about the world, that the world is full of evil. I'm not going up right now. Now, let's just take a quick inventory here to see how Jesus' poll numbers are in this moment. We already know from chapter 6, we saw it last week, the majority of Jesus' followers have turned tail and walked away. They want nothing to do with him anymore. Now we see in chapter 7 that Jesus, his own kinsmen, the Jewish leaders, are seeking to kill him. They're just waiting for the right moment. And even his own brothers, even his own family, are not believing in him. Could things get a whole lot worse at this point? It would be bad enough if the crowds had a poor opinion. At least I know when I I come home for dinner, they're going to celebrate me. No. Everything seems to be turning the other way. And so Jesus has got to make a decision here, right, as to what he's going to do. Is he going to continue to stay in Galilee in the face of this opposition, but also opportunity? What's he going to do? Well, here... We find out in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Now, didn't Jesus just tell his brothers he wasn't going? And then he goes? Uh, did he change his mind? Did he, did he fib? 
Did he tell, did he tell them one thing but then did another? Y'all, when Jesus says, I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet come, that's a reminder to us of who's calling the shots. Jesus has told us multiple times throughout the gospel already, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. I only speak what I hear my Father in heaven saying. I act according to his will. And so when Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast, we need to understand he's saying to his brothers, I'm not going up the way you say I should. I'm not going up publicly to make a spectacle to try to earn everyone's approval back. I will go up when the time is right, and I will go up in the way that most pleases my father. And that's what happens here. He goes up in secret. And what kind of environment does he find when he gets there? Look at verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Uh, Lots of grumbling and whispering, but nobody was speaking openly. Nobody Nobody raised the volume up too high because they were afraid of the leaders. If any of the leaders suspect that I have a positive opinion of this man, they have the power to toss me out of the synagogue. They have the power to ban me from the worship of God's people, which was the highest of shame. And so everyone whispered. Everybody had an opinion, but nobody wanted to make it known, right? But now, verse 14, when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astounded, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, that's, that's, that was a common question that the people asked when they heard Jesus speak. Where does he get this authority, this wisdom, this learning? You notice again how the people are underestimating him? They can't conceive of how a humble man like Jesus someone who had no formal education could have the kind of wisdom and authority with which he spoke. And here's the reason why. Y'all, back in those days, and not much has changed, you know how in in times, uh, even today, it, it makes a difference where you went to school. And some places have a higher, greater reputation than others. You know, you may be proud of where you went to school, but it's, I mean, it's not quite the same as a degree from this place, right? Um, a degree from... This place opens more doors. It gains more credibility. You know, we understand that, right? Well, y'all, it was the same thing back then. If you wanted to be a great teacher, you had to study under a great teacher. There was no other alternative. You had to come up under the leadership of a rabbi, not just to learn the information, but to gain the credibility, right? Like the diploma on the wall. This is where I went to school. It gets me through the door. It gets me the credibility I desire. And so you could only be accepted as a teacher if you were connected to the right people. You would teach what you would learn from them, but you would often appeal to them. I learned from Rabbi so-and-so what I now know. And oh my goodness, that's what gets me the acceptance and favor from the, the crowd, right? And yet Jesus is different. He's altogether different. Jesus teaches unlike anyone ever has. We'll see it later on in this same chapter. 
when the authorities who were sent to arrest them, they come back empty-handed and they say, no one speaks like this man. No one ever has. And yet they can't figure out where this teaching has come from. This man has no education. This man appeals to no rabbi who came before him. Where did he get this authority and wisdom? And so he tells them, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is not just recycling the teaching of another rabbi. He is speaking the very words of God. Spoken for the glory of God, spoken from the mouth of the Son of God. And so this isn't just good teaching. It's not just new teaching. These are the divine words of life. We saw that at the end of chapter 6. Jesus says, the words I speak are spirit and they are life. That's why you've never heard anything like this. That's why you've never encountered anyone like him. And y'all, Jesus makes a very important statement that I want for us to take to heart. It comes in verse 17, if you just saw it. He says, if anyone is willing to do God's will, He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Um, If you own a Bible, some of y'all have red letters in the Bible. When Jesus speaks, they're in red. The life-transforming word of Jesus cannot be reduced only to words on a page. That's how we take them in, but that's not all they are as if you and I could merely in an academic way look at what Jesus says and does and come to our own conclusions about Him. No, see, Jesus, His his Word transcends what we see on the page. Um, and, And Jesus never spoke to the crowds and then stopped and said, okay, hey, everybody, tell me what you thought about that. Does that sound true to you? Do you like that, what I just said? And he never polled the audience. Because when Jesus speaks, he is speaking the very words of God. Words that are true, whether we believe them or not. Because they are God-breathed. And when Jesus says, if you're willing to do the will of God, then you're going to know if my teaching is true and legitimate. What he's saying to us is this. To read the words on the page is what we must do in order to know and understand But that's not all. We've got to understand Jesus Christ from the inside. That is, it's a faith posture, a faith commitment that brings the Word of God to life and brings the transformation to our hearts. It's not something we can do academically only. And so I want to say this. It's a brief point, but it's an important one. You may find Jesus interesting and inspiring and very helpful, but that's not enough. That's not his aim and purpose. Jesus' purpose in the words he speaks, when he says, my words are spirit and are life, these words are meant to bring transformation to the heart. These words are meant to produce life. 
with God. And so if we see Jesus as an inspiring figure, as a helpful person, if we like what he has to say, that's good, but that, that falls short of his purpose. His purpose is not to help us out or simply to teach us true things. He told us his purpose back in chapter 5. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the goal. And so he says, commit yourself to God and his will, and you will know the truth of my words. Now, this is the kind of talk, y'all, that gets Jesus in trouble. Right? Remember, the, the, the chapter starts out, he's avoiding Judea because he knows they want to kill him. Then he goes anyway, finds his way into the temple, and starts to say the same kind of stuff that made them want uh, his head on a platter, right? This is, what they, this is what they were so angry about in the first place. You're making yourself out to be God. You're saying that God is the one who sent you. Why is Jesus doing this? What's his purpose? His desire is to continue to pierce into the heart of these rebellious people. And one of the things he does here, and this is, this is really awesome what he does here at the end of this section. He exposes a hypocrisy in them that you and I need to, to see, perhaps in our own hearts today. Look at verse 19. This will be confusing at first, but, it's, but it's, it's wonderful. Jesus looks at the crowd now in the temple. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Ouch. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They're denying it. Jesus answered them, I did one deed... And you all marvel. Now, stop for a second. The deed Jesus did that he's talking about came back in chapter 5 when he was previously in Jerusalem. He healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. He healed a man who had been uh, paralyzed for 38 years. If you remember that story, he took this man who was laying on his mat, who had no one to help him. He had no way out of his predicament. And Jesus raised him up and gave him life. But he did it on the Sabbath day. And that caused a great stir. Everybody was upset. They didn't really care so much about the healing. All they cared about is that this man was walking around with his mat under his arm on the Sabbath, that Jesus had done this to break the Sabbath law in their estimation. And so that was the idea that on Saturday, the Sabbath day, you can, do, uh, you can worship God, but you can't work. And, and the leaders hadn't forgotten about this. They hadn't forgiven Jesus for what they considered to be this blatant violation of the law. And so Jesus makes reference to it. And then look at what he says in verse 22. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. It started with Abraham before Moses. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken... Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, I mentioned a second ago, this is not real clear what Jesus is saying on the surface, maybe, but it's really amazing. Beginning with Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis, God instituted the right of circumcision. It was a command that all the males, all the offspring of Abraham, the males of Israel, be circumcised. Uh, I'm going to assume you know what that is. 
If you don't know what that is, uh, direct your questions to Jay Warren at 601. I'm just kidding. Uh, come find me after the service, I guess. I, you know, but don't Google it. Just come, come talk to me. I'm going to assume you know what it is. But here's how it worked. Jewish boys, on the eighth day after their birth, they were circumcised. And it was for them, it was a, a way of setting the people of Israel apart as the unique, special called people of God. It was a precious right that they had been given. Also now, also, God commanded his people to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Part of what, which meant don't work on Saturdays, don't work on the Sabbath day. Well, you might be kind of coming across the problem here that Jesus brings up. What about little boys that were born on Friday? Eight days later is the Sabbath. It's Saturday, the day of circumcision. You can't circumcise that child without breaking the Sabbath. You have to break one law in order to keep the other. So the rabbis, at some point, they all got together and they had to make a decision. Which one takes priority here? And they decided that circumcision was the, uh, was the higher-ranking command. It came first before Moses was Abraham, and so they decided we're going to go ahead and circumcise on the Sabbath day. Okay? Problem solved, they thought. But then Jesus says, wait a minute, verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. Don't we see the hypocrisy here? Jesus certainly saw it. These leaders happily made an exception for the law for the sake of another law, right? The exception to one law for the sake of another, but they would not accept Jesus and what he did on the Sabbath. Although what Jesus did was the far greater thing, a miraculous thing, not just a ritual in accordance with the law, but a divine work of salvation, he, he quite literally brought a paralyzed man to physical life in public. And yet they would not accept that act of grace and mercy. Jesus says, you're not judging with righteous judgment. You've missed it here. You've created your own system of law-keeping and exceptions, but you will not accept what I'm doing here and now. And so it wasn't, y'all, that they were just hypocrites. It was that they were missing the point altogether. Think about what Jesus is ushering in here. When he heals that man on the Sabbath day, he's making a point, not just for the sake of that man and his well-being, but a point for all of the people to consider. Uh, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, a way of God making a distinction, a physical distinction among his people Israel that sets them apart for him. But in Jesus Christ... There's a new covenant, a new promise, a new way of being. Because God is going to save people, not by religious ritual, but by His free grace. And not merely one group of people like the Jews, but people from all tongues, tribes, and nations. The salvation of God's grace will go out to the whole world. Not by any rituals that we uh, produce uh, or impose but by the sending of His Son to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when Jesus heals that paralyzed man, that's a sign of the new covenant. 
This man who had no life in himself, who was destined to die in in his uh, disability and in his shame. And Jesus gives him new life in the sight of everyone. How is that a sign of the new covenant? Well, think about you and me. Sinners incapable of saving ourselves, as good as dead. And yet God raises us up to new and eternal life by faith in His Son. Not a religious ritual performed on your body, but the Son of God who gives life to your very soul. Jesus is trying to show these people what they're missing, and yet they're so filled with hypocrisy that they refuse to see it. Now, y'all, I hope it's clear, as as we've read today, how at every turn the people continue to minimize and underestimate Jesus. He's not who we thought he was. He's certainly not who he claims to be. Even his own family was guilty of that. And I want to remind us that we can be guilty of that too. We can try to box Jesus in and figure him out and underestimate him. But y'all, Jesus on his part, never one time did he deviate from his identity and his purpose and his mission. Never once. He knew who he was and he knew why the Father had sent him and he would see it through even to his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's why Jesus can say so confidently of himself back in verse 18, he says, he, that's that's him, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Public opinion didn't change that. The underestimation of the crowds and even his own brothers couldn't change that. Jesus knew who he was, and he walked headfirst into the thing that God called him to do, to declare the truth, to be the truth, and to make a way for us to be saved. He is a perfect Savior. He's given his life for our sake, that we might be alive to God, no longer dead in sin, but now alive forever by faith in him. Y'all, easier said than done, I know, but as we close, let's do our very best to never try to bring Jesus down into our little categories. The crowd was always saying, we'll see it again later on in this chapter. We know him. We know where he's from. We know what he's about. They didn't. They did not know him. And may it never be said of us that we limit Jesus or bring him down into our categories, but that we esteem him for who he truly is. And by God's grace, may we have eyes to see him and worship him for all that he deserves. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. May we not just find him interesting today. May we find him beautiful. And may we worship him by faith. Let's pray. Um, Father, I'm I'm honored this morning uh, to look into your word and to declare it. We're honored as as, uh, human beings that you would so graciously give us your word that we can hold it in our hands and read it with our eyes. But I do pray for what Jesus said in this scripture. 
If anyone is willing to do God's will, then he will know of my teaching, whether it is truly of God. Father, let us this morning um, not just find Jesus interesting or helpful. Let us not just be inspired by his words. But Father, bring us right into the center of your will. Your will, which is to know and trust your Son above all things. Your will, which is by faith we have eternal life and no longer walk in darkness and sin. Your will is that in the sending of your Son to lay down his life for us, we may have life in his name forever. Father, would you, would you see to it this morning that our eyes are wide open, our ears are able to hear, our hearts would respond to this precious grace Jesus Christ has given so that we might come right inside the center of your will and know the truth that transforms our lives. Father, if any of us right now are, are on the outside observing, if we're on the outside just trying our best to be better people, then Father, I pray that you would show us the beauty of the gospel, the good news. We will not, um, we will not know this life that Jesus gives on our own through our own good works, our own intellect, we must be brought in by your awesome grace. Lord, may we receive him and all that he's come to do today. And Lord, may it please you. Father, thank you that Jesus' own family, uh, many of them did come to believe after the resurrection. There is always hope. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we live in perpetual hope because our Savior is alive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.